Amen. Well, if for those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade. Now would be the time to take your kids uh, back there. And for those of you, we love having the children in service. And so for those of you, uh, for the, the kids that are remaining in the service, we have bulletins that you are more than welcome to grab for them that they can utilize to go through this service with us. And so you can uh, go to the back and you can pick those uh, bulletins up and the kids can follow along with us. We have been going through just briefly the... Um, what our confession says, particularly uh, uh, chapter one of our confession, what it has to say about the Word of God, about the Holy Scriptures, and, and the confession, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, much, much like its sister confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, was, is undergirded by Scripture, and it was born in adversity. Uh, it, it is written to, to summarize for us clear doctrinal teachings of Scripture. And so we've been going through, looking at how the confession summarizes what it is that we believe about the Holy Scriptures. And this morning, I just want to quickly read paragraph number six of chapter one as it relates to the Word of God. It says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, Faith and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are be to, uh, to be ordered by the light of nature in Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And so that is paragraph six of chapter one of our confession. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Esther chapter nine. We are concluding this morning, our series through this book, uh, and we're going to look all the way through chapter, there's only three verses in chapter 10, so we're going to look all the way through chapter 10, and my prayer has been, uh, just for myself, as I've been prepping these sermons, and for you, each Lord's Day, is that as we've gone through this book, that you, again, are encouraged by just how inseparable God is from his covenant people, that, that he enters into covenant with his people based on his own good and changing character, not based on their faithfulness, but based on his faithfulness. And as we've seen both in the book of Ruth and in the book of Esther, uh, that God uh, does not go back on his promise, that he does not break his covenant with his people, that he preserves his people, and that ultimately we see that, that he is preserving us um, by applying the works of Christ to our life and by giving us the Spirit of God that lives in us, which the Scriptures say is our guarantor of our inheritance, the imperishable inheritance, the eternal inheritance that we will acquire when God in Christ makes everything new. And so my prayer is, is that this has been an encouraging journey for you. But let me read... Starting with chapter, uh, or starting with chapter nine, going through to uh, chapter ten, I'm going to read the text in its entirety, 
going to summarize some key parts of our passage, and then I have two takeaways for you this morning. And so, and this is the word of the Lord. Perhaps Mordecai wrote this. We're not quite sure what we know is that the Holy Spirit of God inspired it and preserved it. it says this, Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. Love that phrase. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all peoples, all the officials of the provinces, and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Verse 4. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed uh, Parshadantha and Dalphin and Ashpatha and Puratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Arisi and Erida and Vasatha, the ten sons, if you try to pronounce that ten times fast, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Verse 11, that very day the number of those killed in Susa the citadel was reported to the king, and the king said to Queen Esther, in Susa the citadel the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. We see the king inviting this now. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day, the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa, gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send, good, they send gifts of food to one another. Verse 20, And Mordecai recorded these things, And sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day 
of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same year by year as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday that, and, uh, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is cast lots to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they call these days Purim after the term pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. And these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city, and that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihel and Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority confirming the second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, and words of peace and truth that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Chapter 10, King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. And all the acts of his power and might in the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai, the Jew, was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers, for he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see with eyes of faith what it is that we need to see. Ultimately, Lord, that we would see Christ, trust him more deeply, have our affections, Lord, warmed by your spirit. And to walk near you, God. That's what we desire after spending time in your text this morning. So help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the, the day of battle that, that this entire historical account has been swelling toward, has been building toward. And, and it is, uh, by every sense of the word, it is an epic war. It's an epic war. This is the moment where the enemies of God, they clash against God's covenant people, which is to say that they come against God himself, right? Because we're reminded constantly as we read the scriptures, God and his covenant people are inseparable. He's 
wedded himself to us for all eternity. And so to come against God's covenant people is to come against God himself. And our text says, quote, that the reverse occurred. Verse 3, the reverse occurred. And again, I, I love that, that phrase here in this passage, right? And throughout this chapter, there are turns of phrases like this that we could, that, that clue us into God's guiding providential hand. And we especially see this if we're reading it with, with eyes of faith, right? The, the reverse occurred. In other words, the counter edict, it prevailed, right? The reverse occurred. Those who identified themselves with the Amalekites received their just judgment at the hands of those that they sought to annihilate, right? Close to 76,000 enemies were struck down by God through his covenant people, right? That, that's a total defeat here, a total defeat, right? This is the complete undoing of the curse of the Jewish people that we've seen in this wicked kingdom as we've journeyed together over these 10 chapters, right? The reverse occurred, And the author of Esther gives us glimpses, again, with with these turns of phrases as to why it is that the Jewish people were able able to uh, conquer with with such might. The, The enemies fell, according to our text, because, quote, no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. We see that in verse here. The same is true for those, all of those that were in the governing positions in this kingdom as well. Verse 3 says, quote, all the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews. Why? For the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. Again, that's verse 3, right? And think about this. These were the same officials here who were bribed by Haman. These weren't good guys here in the text. According to chapter 3, verse 9, these officials would have received a lot of money for their promotion and advancement of exterminating the Jewish people, and they would have in turn be, they would in turn be taxed by the king. Okay, so, so they were going to get rich off of this war, or off of, war is not even fair what they were planning, right? It was a massacre what they were planning. It was, a, it was, a, it was an execution of sorts. They were going to get rich off of that, according, if you remember back to chapter 3, and not only were they going to get rich off of that, but the king was going to get richer because he was going to tax them on the money that they were going to make off of this wicked decree. Now, these officials here, They saw the wind blowing in a different direction. And and that phrase, fear had fallen, that we see, that that, again, another turn of phrase that we see, fear had fallen, that we see in our text, or fear of Mordecai had fallen. That's significant for us to notice here, especially if we're trying to trace God's providential hand in a book that's not mentioning the name of God at all. Again, God used the, the, the inner workings of this kingdom 
to advance his good preserving purposes for his people. But a similar phrase, fear had fallen, a similar phrase is used in the song of Moses. And and if you wanted to just thumb over to Exodus chapter 15, I'm going to revisit this passage again in just a moment as well. But there's a similar phrase that's that's used in this song that that the Holy Spirit inspired Moses and thus the Israelites to, to sing after they were delivered from Egyptian slavery. And and here's just a part of the song. I'll read a part here and I'll, again I'll read a I'll read uh, more of it in a few moments and I would encourage you, you know, just for a um perhaps later, you know, today with your family, read chapter 15, read the entire, the, the, the song in its entirety and be encouraged by it. But, but verse 16 is of particular interest. Terror, and again, this is the song of Moses, terror and dread fall upon them. Right? Fall upon who? Fall upon the Egyptians here. Why is that? Okay, the, the verse goes on. Because of the greatness of your arm... Okay, again, this is Moses singing to the Lord. They are as still as a stone, which is how the enemies of God are in chapter 9 of our text here in Esther, right? They're, they're being slaughtered. The ones that thought they were going to do the slaughtering, they're the ones that get slaughtered they're, because they're paralyzed in fear, right? Verse 16 goes on. Until your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Right? We... We have every reason to harmonize this, this song of Moses that speaks of terror and dread falling upon the Egyptians with the fear that fell on God's enemies here in Esther chapter 9. And we have every reason to give God the glory for it. All right, God alone delivered his enemies into the hands of of his people, to preserve his people. Why? For his own glory, for his own namesake. The very reason why it is that he preserves us in Christ Jesus. And again, the defeat, this battle, this war that happens, it's, it's total. It's a, a total annihilation of God's enemies. God would have it no other way. We even see the king, who we know to be a wicked king, We even see the king say to Queen Esther in verse 12, and again, this is before the 75,000 enemies are wiped out. He says, quote, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. And and it's almost like he's, he's, he's really gotten into it. If they've done this here, what else have they done? He says, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? He's essentially inviting Esther, asking Esther, saying, ask for more, ask for more. So Esther, she does that. She asks for more victory, right? And Esther and the Jewish people, they follow through because they they really are at this stage in the game invested in a holy war. And we even see that evidenced by the fact that, that the Jewish people don't even take any of the plunder from their defeated enemies, although the edict that Mordecai wrote uh, allowed for that provision. In holy war, the plunder isn't being taken. So there's a total conquering of an enemy, and that enemy should have been, as we've seen in our journey together, should have been conquered long ago. And Queen Esther, she even has the, the offspring of Haman hung on the gallows. Right? She's, she's making a, a public statement there about what happens to the enemy of the Jews, and she secures from the king at his invitation an additional day to wipe out any remaining opposition. Opposition. 
Right? And the king grants it. He, he seemingly wants to grant it. And by the end of this battle, the Jews are, they are decidedly victorious. No casualties on the Jewish side. There could have been casualties, but there's no casualties that are even reported in our particular text. They've secured rest from their enemies. The holy war is over and a feast is set into law after the victory, right? The, the Jewish people were to keep a feast called the Feast of, of, of Purim, which, which became a holiday uh, that uh, kids, it was kind of like Christmas. There was gift giving and there was joy and, and festivities and excitement. It was a day that, that was looked forward to every year that happened once a year. And it was to celebrate the fact that the Jewish people defeated their enemies, they defeated their enemies, and, and it's good and it's appropriate for the Jewish people to be able to celebrate. They should celebrate that their enemies had been conquered. And this was a celebration, though, supposedly of remembrance. It's a celebration of remembrance, and, and the remembrance, it went something like this. Look at verses 25, 24 and 25 if you're following along with me in Esther chapter 9. Quote, for Haman the Agagite, and again, when we're seeing Agagite, we're thinking of Malachite, okay? The son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews, this is what they're remembering here, okay? Plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when, and, and take note of this, when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. That's interesting to me. That's what they're celebrating every year. That's what they're called to remember every year. This is the public account of what went on. Right? This is what Mordecai wrote about. And it is the king there in that passage that's credited with the deliverance and if we were to just take this passage out of context, I would come to certain conclusions. We would all come to certain conclusions about the king that aren't true of him. Wow, what a swell guy. The moment he learned about the, ev the wicked, evil plan of Haman, he made it come down on his own hands. What a great deliverer that king Xerxes, that king Ahasuerus is. During the feast of, of Purim, the king's the hero. The king's the hero. Right? It's no wonder that it was allowed that this feast become law. Here. And now we can see even how the king signing off on the destruction of the enemies of the Jewish people was a good move for him, even politically speaking, because he, he really, in chapter 9, he really got behind it. He, he really got excited about it. Right, this is great PR for the wicked king, right? He is celebrated as the hero of the Jewish people here. And this feast, this celebration, it was to be kept every single year. It was to be remembered generation after generation. The Jewish people in these provinces would have faithfully taught, and by teach, I mean discipled, would have discipled their children in this public historical officially approved, sealed with the king's signet ring account of what happened. And this had the authority of Queen Esther. This had the authority of Mordecai. Certainly meant it had the authority of the king, right? This is how the Jewish people in Babylon 
celebrated. Let me take us back again to how the Israelites celebrated the defeat of the Egyptians in Exodus 15. And I'm just going to read the first seven verses of this song. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Right? Because what else do you do? Right? When your enemies have been defeated, when the Lord has been faithful, the natural outworking of that with affections warmed for God is to sing. It's to sing. Quote, I'll sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he's thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. The difference in celebration is obvious. It's obvious. The songs are different. Right? The songs are different. Who's being celebrated in Babylon? Who who are you allowed to celebrate in Babylon? According to the official record, right? But seemingly the king, according to that record. Who's the focal point of the celebrations of the Israelites after the enemies in Egypt are defeated? It is explicitly the Lord. Explicitly the Lord. Right? He's mentioned 16 times just in those seven verses I just read you. 16 times. Yet he's mentioned nowhere in the book of Esther. And he's certainly not the object of the annual feast, of the annual celebration. What's Christmas without God incarnate? This historical narrative, it ends with the king, and it may even seem abrupt to us, but it ends with the king imposing a tax, and and Mordecai is keeping an account as to the, 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 the history and the events of Ahasuerus' kingdom in their chronicles book. Again, not the inspired chronicles in the scripture, but in their, the chronicles of their own kingdom here. And I can't help but to think that the tax that was imposed on the people was the king making sure that he got everything that was his to get. Right? He regained his reputation. His favorite wife is happy. All right? He didn't lose the money that Haman promised him back in chapter 3, verse 9. Right? The king got his riches. And while the king seems prosperous here, toward the end of this book, we should note that our sovereign triune God who melts the hearts of kings used the vanity of Ahasuerus to deliver and preserve his covenant people. And and though this is beyond the scope of this text, scholars agree that Ahasuerus, again, also known as Xerxes, died an untimely death at around 53 years of age. According to Aristotle, he was assassinated 
by one of his royal bodyguards in a conspiracy involving some of his close servants. Right, Ahasuerus and his kingdom, right, that Chronicles book that was kept, it's now just a footnote in history. Yet, God's covenant people remain Gentiles grafted in and are expanding and, and our King Jesus, our good king, completely different than Ahasuerus. He reigns over heaven and he reigns on earth. And, and I want to give us just this morning two takeaways related to this last point by, by picking up on a couple of key things in our text. And, and I have these takeaways listed in your worship guide, so don't feel like you have to rush to jot them down. But the first takeaway for us is this. Our great king is conquering enemies through the advancement of the gospel. Our great king is conquering his enemies through the advancement of the gospel. Right? Unlike Ahasuerus, unlike Haman, Jesus is not a footnote in history. And he's never going to be a footnote in history because he's not someone that can be ignored. He's not someone that can be conquered. He's not someone that's going to go in way. His presence and his authority and his message is inescapable. It's inescapable. It's the very air that we breathe. And, and while we see that the enemies of God were conquered through bloodshed in the historical account of Esther, we know that in Christ, God is presently conquering all of his enemies. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. We may have it up. Yeah, we have it up here. But this man, okay, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, for what? Forever. Forever, he sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. Right here, the, the preacher to the Hebrews, probably the Apostle Paul here, he's quoting Psalm 110 verse 1. Where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. And he's applying that psalm to Jesus Christ in which it then becomes a messianic psalm, a psalm that Christ has fulfilled and is presently fulfilling, if it is, in fact, true that he's seated and he's ruling and he's reigning at the right hand of God. And we know that it's true because he told us that that was true before he ascended to the right hand of God. All right, we have clear teachings in Scripture that Jesus has all authority now. Very clear teachings in Scripture. All right, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, the grounding of the Great Commission is in the authority of Jesus Christ. It's in his authority and, and that he's seated at the right hand of God now and that he's not going to leave the right hand of God until every enemy has made his footstool except for the last enemy, which is death, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which will be conquered when Jesus returns and reunites in this grand resurrection our souls with our bodies. So presently... Everything that is in opposition to God's kingdom is being subdued, is being brought into submission, is being overcome. And that's been going on for 2,000 plus years. And by the way, progress is being made. Progress is being made. Right? Every rebellious molecule will submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Again, it's inescapable. 
The late James Montgomery Boyce, if you're f- familiar with his preaching and teaching ministry up in Pennsylvania, speaking of those in rebellion to the Lord, he once said that when Christ returns, right, even those who are damned, those that are not in Christ, will agree with the rightness of their damnation. And this harmonizes with what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Right, you know this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, has highly exalted Christ, and he's bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, where? Right? In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right? At the very name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he alone is the Lord, right? Those that will be in everlasting happiness with our triune God in the new heavens and the new earth, and those not in Christ that will receive the just wage for sin, which is the everlasting wrath of God. No matter who it is, every man, every woman, every child, every creature, every angel, every demon, all of creation will bow a knee and confess Christ as Lord, those in heaven those on the earth, and those under the earth. And this is the culmination of Christ conquering his enemies, Christ conquering them through the the proclamation of the gospel, not weapons of war like we see here in Ahasuerus' kingdom. God conquers Christ's enemies when the gospel hardens his enemies, God conquers Christ's enemies when the gospel softens his enemies and saves them and transfers them into his good, glorious, everlasting kingdom. And Christ, he won't return. He won't leave the right hand of the Father until that conquest is complete. He won't leave that conquest incomplete. All right, he, he won't return until every tribe, tongue, and nation know that Jesus rules and reigns. He won't return until the nations are brought to obedience, Matthew 28, verse 20. But he will return. He will return. And when he returns, we will see plainly the ultimate reversal, which is the second point this morning. When Christ returns, we'll see the ultimate reversal. Right? This great reverse... When our text says the reverse occurred, like and I just want to capitalize on that phrase for a few moments. But this great reversal that we see in the kingdom of Ahasuerus can direct us to the great reversal. Our world, and even many Christians, think that the present trajectory that we're on is one of defeat. And, and I can certainly sympathize with that. Right? With all that, that we see in our society, things are grim. Right? Things are dark. Sin and suffering, they abound, right? But Ahasuerus' kingdom was dark, and it was wicked, and it was full of suffering. After the ascension of Christ, things were not okay for Christians under the reign of the wicked emperor Nero. He used to take Christians and he would tie them to poles and he would set them on fire just to provide light for his garden. Things didn't look well for Peter 
who was crucified upside down. Things didn't look well for Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. Not just because his name was terrible, but... But he, he, was, he was burned at the stake for his faith. Or the Christians who were fed to starved lions for entertainment in Roman culture. Right, things have looked dark for missionaries to unreached tribes who have been martyred for their faith and their humanitarian efforts. Right, things look dark for Christians in places like China and North Korea and now Afghanistan and like-minded countries. Things can look dark, things can look grim, things can look hopeless. Think of the the state of of confusion that Ahasuerus' kingdom was in, even when that wicked edict went out, yet they were used to things being bleak. Men and women used to be taken into the service of the kingdom for whatever whatever wicked intent the king had in mind, yet that edict that went out in that time seemed too dark to bear. It felt like the end of the world. You hear a lot about that, right? The end of the world. Maybe we think about that a lot, the end of the world. Yet in Ahasuerus' kingdom, the dreaded day came and the great reversal happened, right? Things didn't play out the way that, that folks thought it was going to play out, right? And, and many times in our lives, it seems it genuinely seems to us like the end of the world. It could be due to our own sufferings. It could be due to what we see in the media. It could be the constant reporting of some looming catastrophe, whether that be cultural or environmental or economical or nuclear. Yet, yet it, it, it's important that we see this. It's important that we internalize this because it changes absolutely everything for us. We are building by God's grace, toward an unstoppable, great, grand reversal. We are building toward that. It it was at the mustard seed level at the time that Jesus walked the earth. Perhaps it's a little seedling now. I don't know. But it will grow, and and it will grow massively. And, And the culmination of that will be this definitive final reversal when God in Christ reverses everything that the curse has touched. Nothing's off limits. Nothing's off limits. I love that line that we sing at Christmas time, enjoy to the world. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the what? The curse is found. Like far as the curse is found. We we have reason to celebrate, just as God's covenant people celebrated when their enemies defeat, were defeated. But, but our good, sovereign, triune God is the one, should be the one behind, should be projecting and pushing our celebrations, our feastings. Right? The blessings of God, which are ours in Christ Jesus, will, really will, seep into everything and when he ultimately, when Christ ultimately reverses death, right, we'll see that his blessings go everywhere the curse is found. And his blessings, the blessings of Christ, the redemptive blessings of, of having your sins forgiven, is so much more potent than the curse. So we should have hope. 
And we should conclude our Esther series this morning, this time that these last several weeks that we've spent in a dark, bleak book. We really should conclude it with more hope than we had when we started it. And we can look up and we can view our, our circumstances by God's grace, can view our society by God's grace through the lens of God's word. Because the light of our God genuinely does expel the darkness. We go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you again for this time in your word. God, help us to be a people that have hope. Because you remain the same. Help us to be anchored to you, Lord, through our doubts, our wrestlings, our sufferings, our sins, our sorrows, God, when we're tempted to despair, Lord, may we be anchored to you. And we thank you for the numerous examples that you give us of your faithfulness. The ultimate symbol of your faithfulness being the empty tomb. And we love you and praise you.